0: Hey. Welcome to Win the Shift a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. Uh I hope you're doing all right out there. As I record this uh here in my old house. We are kind of at a any time now situation with the birth of our first child. So uh so my hope is that I get through this whole podcast recording without having to dash off to the hospital. Uh, I'm pretty sure we'll make it uh through this. Uh, I guess if we don't it's unlikely you'll end up hearing this, unless you know, I do an in-the-shift outtakes reel at some point in the future. But uh, chances are, this is going to make it out. So here we are. Um, I've heard from reliable sources that apparently your life can change a little bit uh, when you have a newborn in the house. So, uh, so if the future episodes starts sounding, a li- I start sounding a little groggy, uh, maybe start slurring my words, then you can uh, probably guess that I am sleep deprived or something like that. Uh, but hopefully, I do. I'll do okay. I reckon. I reckon we'll be okay. <laughs> Some of you out there are probably shaking your heads. But anyway, we'll give it a go, right? That's all you can do. Anyway, into uh, into our stuff for today. For the first part of this year, 2019, here we are. We're spending a bit of time talking about how we think about God in this, in this series we're doing. Because ultimately what we believe lies at the heart of fundamental reality, which is often connected to our ideas about God, right? Um, so what we believe lies at the heart of... Reality itself, what kind of sits underneath all of this, shapes how much of how we actually interpret life, how we think about ourselves, how we engage with others, how we negotiate the ups and downs of our everyday existence. Um, And whether we're sort of aware of that or not, whether we're thinking about it consciously or not, that's a, a lot of what's happening under the surface for us, that we have this framework of ideas, not always coherent, they don't always make sense, they're not always rational, they don't always all fit together, but... They do inform the way that we interpret and experience our lives and the way we kind of make sense of things and the way we act and behave towards ourselves and towards other people, or at least they contribute to that. In the last episode, we began a three-part conversation on the violence we find in the Bible, which, well, that sounds like a fun time, doesn't it? Um, But we're doing it because many people of Christian faith often find themselves in this weird and, and kind of incongruent space, and a space which I was in for much of my life, which is where on the one hand... I had this idea of God, and I've talked about a little bit about this in the podcast before, but I held you know this idea of God who is good and who is love, and then on the other hand, the scripture that I would read deals in so much violence and as a kid growing up I didn't really sense the discrepancy, at least not obviously you know I sort of I somehow sat with these two things together uh, without even really questioning it yeah God is good and loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life and look at all these violent stories and how god was involved in them but you know over time the cognitive dissonance does start to grow and you start to become more aware i remember i was in uh, i was in i was doing my science degree at university back in the day and my, this was back when i was still a budding scientist before i had the sideways switch into theology and uh, I had to do this on le- this elective paper. We all had to do at least one paper that wasn't sciencey. And so I chose a history paper. And I remember sitting in a tutorial and somebody in the tutorial brought up the issue of violence that was preached from Christian pulpits over the years. And I was outraged. I thought, where on earth have you pulled this from, this kind of... Anti-Christian propaganda, and so I was like, I, I, as a reserved, mild-mannered, um, but internally very devoted um, young Christian man, I burst forth with the defence of the Christian faith, uh, and sort of, you know, incredulously sort of protested, "What, what do you mean, violence from the Christian pulpit?" And then the tutor sort of chipped, and well, you know, well, Michael, there has been a there have been a few incidents. Oh, and, I, and I was sort of outraged and struggled to really make sense of what was going on. But over time and over the following years, increasingly began to see that that was in fact a situation that unfolded both within the biblical text and within the Christian tradition. And and that creates a kind of a dissonance within yourself um, And I think so many people of faith who grew up in this kind of tradition find themselves trying to relate to a good God with a text that reveals both God and God's people to be violent in many respects. Except for Jesus, who seems like this kind of nice guy, but then also some ways we read Jesus have him coming back at the end and turning out to be a bit of a warrior as well. So what do we do with all of that? Because if we don't do anything with it, then although we might say on one level that God is good, and God is love, on a deeper level there's a big question mark circling around that statement. And you might not even really be aware of it or know it. You might not even be able to say it if somebody asked you. But it's there because the dissonance is there. Now for many people, the repetitive violence of the Bible, which is seemingly endorsed at times by the writers of the text and by the character of God, right, the God character in the story, also seems to endorse this violence, which we're going to spend a bit more time on in the next episode. All of this is more than enough to put lots of people off from ever considering there to be anything useful uh, found in the pages of these ancient biblical texts. And so maybe the Bible is just an outdated text about some violent, petty God and a bunch of violent, petty, ancient tribal people, and it's not worth paying attention to. Or for others, there are all sorts of ways to justify or overlook the violence in the text. You know, to come up with things like, well, that was what it was like before Jesus. Um, Jesus begins the era of grace, but before that all the violence was kind of okay or had to happen justified for then but not for now. All sorts of ways to rationalise how this seems to be a part of the story of God and God's people. But the challenge with doing this is that even if we're not violent people, here and now, there's this underlying assumption that even God will engage in violence, murder and genocide and stuff like that. If it helps meet the overall objectives that God has in mind, it's kind of means to an end stuff. And even though Jesus has kind of changed the current formula, uh, ultimately there's a part of God who is quite willing to deal in violence of that sort. And there's a troubling idea, that's a troubling idea to hold in the undercurrent, in the foundations of your life. So I'm suggesting an alternative to either of these perspectives, the sort of toss-it-out perspective or the justify-it perspective. I don't want to do either of those things. And again, similarly to last week, I think in many respects, or last episode, in many respects, the issues we see being worked out in the stories that we find in the biblical text are still the same fundamental issues we wrestle with now. And there's, I think, some wisdom be found here if we're able to step back and think about what's going on. So over the course of these three episodes, I'm looking at three kinds of violence. If you listen to the last episode, you'll know we talked about tribal violence. In this episode, we're talking about patriarchal violence. And then in the coming episode, we're going to be talking about divine violence. And all of these, as I've mentioned, are interconnected, of course. But for the sake of kind of working it out in this podcast, we're tackling them over three different conversations. When we talked about tribal violence in the last episode... Particularly in the Old Testament, we had these stories of competition and ego and survival and revenge, and then these subversive challenges that emerged throughout the story too, to resist this way of being, the challenge to love one's enemy, to forgive, to see the other no longer as this dehumanized, objectivized um, person or subperson, but to see them as a human being. And so in order to grapple with our responses to violence, we actually need to acknowledge the violence. Pretending that it's not a problem doesn't allow us to explore some healthy and helpful ways forward. And I don't just mean physical violence too, but the violence of any kind of dehumanisation, of the ways we diminish and suppress the presence of another, the way we seek to impose ourselves over one another, to bend others to our own desires and our will. This kind of violence is something we all wrestle with even those of us who don't go around assaulting people or punching them in the face. So here we go. We've got two more episodes about biblical violence to look at. I hope you're up for it. This is episode eight of In The Shift. Let's get into it. So this episode then is continuing our little three-part series on the text of terror, and in particular exploring the subject of patriarchal violence, of masculine violence against women in the Bible. And I feel like in some ways this episode might need a trigger warning in that maybe that's a weird thing to say in talking, or you might feel like it's a weird thing to say in talking about the Bible, but the truth is that some of the stories in the Bible are truly disturbing, Uh, And even more so if we start to think about some of the ways that women are treated throughout many occasions in the scripture. Uh, In particular in the Old Testament, there are stories of oppression, of assault, even of rape and murder. And many of the perpetrators of these acts, or at least some of them, uh, are sometimes held up as heroes of the Judeo-Christian faith. And I can understand why that would be actually too difficult to go near uh, for some people. So I totally get it if you just want to turn the episode off at this point. Um... And I want to say a few other things before I really get into the episode, I think, or the, the content at least, uh, I do want to acknowledge that I'm a, I'm a man, I'm a, I'm a straight, white, kind of middle class man talking about this, and without getting into the ins and outs of identity and how that shapes the way we talk about stuff, and I don't necessarily want to get into that here, but it's it's definitely, it's unavoidable that there are going to be some insights I'll miss in this conversation. Uh, because of my particular perspective, uh, because of my place in life, some things that I'll be inadequate in addressing, so kind of bear with me as I do this. But I, I want to do it anyway, because I think there's a need for both women and men to speak about the kind of uh, male-on-female violence that we see in the scriptures, and that we still see so prevalent in society today. We certainly don't have to go very far uh, to find it. Um, I have added a few resource su- suggestions in the episode notes for the podcast so uh, depending on the podcast platform you're listening on you should be able to see those. Uh, a few books by by female authors if you'd like to read up. Um, some of these are pretty weighty biblical interpretive books so uh, just know that that's kind of the kind of substance of them but if you'd like to take them on then please do. Uh, they include, uh, there's a book called Text of Terror by Phyllis Tribble after which I've sort of named this little series. There's also a a book named Womanist Midrash by uh, Will Gaffney, uh, and another book edited by Sandra Glan, which is called Vindicating the Vixens. So check out any of those if you actually want to really work through in detail some of these stories and what's going on here. Um, The other thing I want to say, which maybe is stating the obvious and I've already sort of indicated it, but similar to the last episode when we talked about tribal violence, um, this kind of violence isn't a thing of the past. So once again, these stories are dealing with fundamental problems in the human experience that are present with us in the here and now. This is not just some conversation about those people back then over there. Um, it's also violent that's, violence that's present with us here and now. And when we read this as scripture or as part of the sacred text of the Christian tradition, we need to be able to do so in a way that gets away from the point of view that sees this violence as being divinely sanctioned uh, because it's in the Bible and instead approach it from a different perspective and see if this actually helps us to get somewhere. And the other thing I kind of want to mention, which is a bit of a prelude to what we or at least a bit of a scene setter for what we're going to be talking about, is that when we look at male-female relationships in the ancient Near East and in particular if we're thinking about uh, the context in which these Old Testament stories emerge, and uh, the story of ancient Israel emerges, we aren't dealing, especially when we look at notions of men and women who are in what we might call a, some kind of marriage relationship, we are not dealing with modern notions of marriage as we understand them now. There's a tendency, I think, in, in more popular level reading of the Bible, that whenever the biblical text speaks of a couple or of, of people who are married, we immediately put in our mind the kind of idea of marriage that you might have now, whether that's good or bad, I don't know, but Think of a man, a man and woman who are in this kind of, you know, loving relationship where they've chosen each other and, um, and so on. But when you read the stories of the, if you actually you recognise that that's often not what's going on, and you start to peel that assumption away, and then you start to read the stories, you actually begin to notice things that you wouldn't notice otherwise. At least that's been my experience. When I allow myself to say, "Hang on, what if I didn't assume that this was a." A wonderful, loving, uh, committed partnership between two equals, and uh, and then I read the story. And I start to I, I started to see all sorts of different things popping up at the text that I hadn't noticed before. Uh, one of the things you see is that many women in the Old Testament stories are simply given or sold to their husbands. These are not relationships of love. These are not committed partnerships of two equals. At least you know, in, in the sense of the way they were seen. Uh, in the socio-political climate of the day, uh, they were often about political alliances or about property exchange, um, which is not to, that doesn't rule out the possibility of love and affection developing between these people, but marriage in the Old Testament is not primarily about two people loving each other and committing to each other for the rest of their lives out of a love and desire for, for, for partnership. And in many of these marriages, the male figure, the patriarch of the family, also had, you know, concubines. There's some debate about the interpretation of the particular word that's translated in that way. But at the very least, there were often multiple women of varying kind of levels of status within the within the home or the wider household, uh, who the patriarch would have sexual access to. And there's little little indication that these were all sort of willing participants, as it were. Uh, and on many occasions, these men also have multiple wives. So we have. This marriage that's really in some ways about property, we've got polygamy, we've got mistresses, we've got concubines, and a fair bit of prostitution. So if you want to make an argument for biblical marriage as your model, you've got a bit of work to do, but maybe that's for another episode. The main thing to note here at this point is that when we take away the assumed norm of this loving, kind of committed partnership, we become instantly more aware, I think we do anyway, to the, to the way in which some of the actions of these biblical men is often abusive, violent, and oppressive. So what I want to do is mention a few biblical stories and then to give you a bit of a sense of what I'm talking about and then offer some reflections and observations and maybe some suggestions for going forward as to what we do with this and how this actually might be helpful to us in some kind of way. All right, so if we start near the beginning, and I also have to apologize for the... uh, The lack of jokes that are about to come in the rest of this podcast. Not that I'm necessarily a joke a minute kind of guy anyway, although, you know, I have my moments. Um, But this is not really, um, this is not material that's well suited to a bunch of punchlines. So I'm going to leave those to the side uh, for the most part. So if we go to the book of Genesis, which if you know, uh, the Christian text is the first book uh, of the Old Testament there are these three great patriarchs of Israel that are talked about, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So in many respects, these are the three sort of heroes of Israel's origin story. Uh, And there are times when God is named or identified in the Old Testament where God is named and identified as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So basically the way the story goes is that the world is is turning into a bit of a mess and God chooses Abraham, who was named Abram, to be the beginning of this um, people who would become Israel, who would be God's people, who would embody a different way of being in the world. So we've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Isaac is Abraham, one of Abraham's sons, uh, and Jacob is one of Isaac's 12. So I just want to point out a couple of things briefly about two of these guys. So let's start with Abraham. Abraham is married to Sarah, and look, they are a bit of a, they're, a, they're a piece of work as a couple actually, in their own ways. Uh, they've both got real issues. Um, but Abraham's they traveled to Egypt at one point, and uh, Abraham is a bit worried that someone more powerful than him is going to desire his wife Sarah, and because uh, they can't just take her, they will probably have to kill him so that then they can take her to be theirs. And he's a bit worried about that. Not to protect her, of course. Please note that. Uh, He's interested in his own protection here. Uh, So what he does is he says to her, you've got to pretend you're my sister. Uh, So that that way, um, basically, the uh, the upshot of that is so that I won't get um, killed when somebody wants to take you because apparently Sarah was very beautiful. And what in fact happens is that the pharaoh of Egypt at this time does really take a shine to her and takes her as her own, uh, as his own. Now again, there's no discussion about any kind of consent. It's not as if Sarah and the Pharaoh fall in love, uh, And nor does Abraham protest. Uh, he doesn't complain about this. There's this exchange that is made. Sarah is given to Pharaoh because she's not married, so therefore Pharaoh can take her uh, because she's just Abraham's sister. Now as her older as her brother, her older brother, Abraham benefits from this exchange. He's given all sorts of cattle, sheep, servants, male and female, slaves in other words. Um, And so what we really have here is Sarah is in fact sold from Abraham to Pharaoh, um, which ultimately results in benefit for Abraham, both in the fact that he's not killed because they didn't have to kill him because she wasn't married to him in their eyes, And secondly, this is in fact the origin of all of Abraham's wealth. So if you read on in Genesis, you find that Abraham becomes a very wealthy man. Well, this is how he acquires the beginning of that wealth uh, through Sarah's, um, the exchange of Sarah to Pharaoh. Now, the way the story gets told then is that everybody in Pharaoh's household all start to get diseases because in fact Abraham and Sarah are kind of God's people that he's put together. Um, And a part of his essential plan for the future nation of Israel. And so the God character essentially steps in on her behalf. Uh, and so Sarah is returned to Abraham by Pharaoh. Pharaoh does a bit of complaining, says, hey, this is, this is not your sister, this is your wife. And now look at what's happened to us. And they're asked to leave, but they get to leave with all the stuff that Abraham has acquired. So that's a pretty rough start to the story. Uh, in terms of the way in which Sarah is treated as this piece of property that's essentially exchanged between these people as Abraham tries to protect his own life and his honour and ultimately benefits materially out of it. Now, later in the story, Abraham and Sarah have been promised to have these, you know, they they see themselves having this family uh, and yet they can't conceive. And so Sarah's solution to this um, is to give Abraham Hagar, who's her, who's like an Egyptian a servant. Her her name's probably not Hagar because Hagar simply means foreigner. So she probably has a name from her homeland that she's um, that doesn't hold in the story. Um, but essentially, what happens is that Abraham takes Hagar as his into his bed so that he can conceive a child who will then be his heir. And now again, something to note here, there's no talk of consent. You know, this is this is in fact all very Handmaid's Tale at this point, if you've seen that show, uh, and that's not a good thing, right? This is a young woman forced into the bed of this much older man simply for the purposes of bearing him a child uh, so that he and his wife may not be uh, shamed or dishonoured by, the, by their barrenness, as the way the story tells it. Um... So Will Gaffney in that uh, that book that I mentioned earlier uh, notes that Sarah orchestrates Hagar's sexual abuse by Abraham and is a party to and beneficiary of it. So Sarah is involved in this process, but Abraham is a more than willing participant. Now there's much more to the story that we don't have time to dive into, but needless to say, the father of ancient Israel, the father of the three great monotheistic faiths, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, here in the story is seen to be a man Abusive over this young woman, Hagar, and abusive over his wife, Sarah. Now, perhaps this is not unusual in his day and age, and it probably wasn't. But that doesn't mean we can excuse it or gloss over it in the story. We can't just say, ah, well, he was a man of his time. Um, that might help us understand why he did the things he did, but it doesn't, it shouldn't lead us to saying, therefore, it was all okay. Now, uh, so that's Abraham. Now we actually find that Abraham, the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob trilogy. Uh, Jacob does a similar thing at one point, which is which is to take, you know, a, a handmaid or a, a womb slave, depending on the terminology you want to use. Uh, again, we've got the possibility of the shame of barrenness for one of his wives. So we've got polygamy in this story as well. We've got um, we've got another young woman servant slash slave being forced into this bed of this older man, so that she might bear a child for this family. So of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, two of them, as far as the story goes, um, demonstrate abuse of much younger women. Um, so there we go, the great patriarchs. <sighs> um, now, there are many other stories in Scripture too, and there's way too many to mention all of them, but uh, I'll mention briefly a couple of them. We have characters like Jephthah, so in the book of Judges, uh, he's this character who wins this great battle on behalf of the Israelites. And so at this time in the story, Israelites have no king; uh, they are just being ruled by the judges. They've gone into their promised land, right? So they've gone; they've taken possession of the land of Canaan, obliterating a bunch of people along the way, as we mentioned last time. And now they're trying to occupy the land, and they keep, uh, you know, these skirmishes and battles with neighbouring tribes and surrounding peoples keep popping up. And Jephthah is is a man who's devoted to God. And so God is on his side as he wins a great battle for the people of Israel. And in a moment of devotion to God, uh, vows that when he gets home, whatever comes through the door, he shall sacrifice. Now, it's a bit vague in the story. Is he anticipating a slave coming through the door? Is he anticipating an animal to come through the door? It's not entirely clear, but certainly what is clear as the was, wasn't anticipating his daughter to be the first thing person that comes through the door when he gets home, uh, and he holds his vow to God uh, so seriously, which says something about his view of God. Something negative. Spoiler alert: um, that he, he not he can't break his vow. Uh, And so after giving her two months to grieve and go and hang out with her friends, he sacrifices his daughter. Now, that's a horrendous story, right? And we could be like, oh yeah, great Old Testament shocker. But even the book of Hebrews, right, which is a letter written in the New Testament, uh, Jephthah is listed in Hebrews 11 as one of the great heroes of faith who, in the author's words, One who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. But there's no mention of his daughter here, is there? There's no mention of the human sacrifice that he offered to Yahweh, his only child, his daughter. And this is a problem for me. Perhaps we could talk about the biggest hero of the Old Testament, King David the one who kills the giant Goliath with just five little stones and a sling and then chops off his head the one who moves from shepherd boy to king of israel and the way the text tells the story is a man after god's own heart and he becomes the archetype he becomes the kind of king that israel always longed for he's the man who builds them into this powerful nation he's a man who's apparently devoted to god he wins them great battles And so for centuries and centuries and centuries, the Hebrew people longed for another king like David. And this, in fact, shapes their hope for a coming deliverer, a Messiah, a Christ. They always talk about one coming from the line of David, one who will sit on David's throne, one who would do what David did for them. But what do we learn about David and his treatment of women? Well, there's a few things. One, he gathers to himself at least 10 women to whom he's married or has children. And his treatment of these women at at best is like property and possession and ambivalence and at worst can be abusive. And then there's his most notorious encounter with a woman named Bathsheba. And this is a story that I got told a lot when I was younger. And it was really a story about the dangers of adultery and passionate affairs outside of marriage. Um which doesn't quite get at what happens in the story. Now Bathsheba is married and David sees her bathing naked on the roof of a nearby building. Uh, Now one of the things when I got taught this story when I was uh, younger in in church contexts was that, because the text says, you know, at the time when kings went to war, David was at home. And this is evidence as to why David should have been off at war rather than at home. And that's the main takeaway of the story. Well, maybe, but that's an exercise in missing uh, some pretty serious points that are at play here. Um, David, for whatever reason, is home. Should he have been off killing other people? Oh, well, I guess if you want to read it that way, go for it. But I'm not going to argue that that's what he should have been doing. Anyway, he sees Bathsheba, who's apparently this beautiful woman. She's bathing naked on the roof of a nearby building. And he wants her. And he's the king. So he sends for her and sleeps with her. And she falls pregnant with his child. And she, tell, she sends message to say, I'm pregnant with your child. And so he arranges for her husband to be killed. And then he takes her as his wife. Now, at no point in this story does it appear to be a story about some kind of passionate extramarital affair. There's no indication in the story that Bathsheba wanted any of this. This is a king... Now, you might say, well, she could have said no. Well, think about the power dynamics at play here. And this is a king who has all the power and who through the weight of his power can demand that a married woman come into his bed. And then this king has the husband killed to justify his own abuse. Now, he's confronted by the prophet and this is named as an evil act in the story. But this is not, the evil act is not some passionate love affair outside of marriage, although that's the way many Christians are taught To read it. In some ways, that kind of of protects David a little bit, right? Well, he fell to that classic old sin of falling in love with the wrong person, or, you know. um, That's much easier to tell ourselves than what really happened. I mean, I was reading, I was teaching a class some time ago, and I mentioned a particular interpretation and reading of the dynamics of this story. And one of the male students. In the class, his first question was, "Yeah, but what was she doing bathing on the roof naked?" And that's a problem, right? This is this is a problematic response because it's based on the fact that David's already kind of our good guy, our hero of the story. So, although the story shows him sinning, yes, it's the kind of sin that we can we can kind of feel okay about, just a bit of an affair and a, and a wee bit of cover up murder. <laughs> uh, you know, a bit a bit dodgy. Um, the affair is a bit dodgy. The murderer, the murderer is, is a bit more dodgy. Uh, but please don't mention the R word. Uh, don't call it rape. Not for our David, not for our hero. But that's what it is. Anyway, these stories are shocking and they should be. One of the worst things I think that can happen, worse than not reading this, is to read it and then find reasons to explain it away or make it less shocking or justify it. So what does all of this tell us? And do the scriptures offer any insight or pathway forward that might offer us a different way of being in the world? So here's a few observations I want to make. Firstly, as I mentioned right at the start, we see here a long-standing problem, male violence against women. This is a problem that we've had with us for a long time, and one which is not limited to one context or another in isolation. The Book of Judges that I mentioned earlier with the story of Jephthah who sacrifices his daughter, the you know scholars suggest that the editor, the compiler of this text, is emphasising the need for a king in this text. So in Judges... Uh, the narrator tells the story is a time when there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so these kind of examples of terrible behavior are evidence that what is needed is a king. And so it, in the story, it gives justification for the rising of a monarchy in Israel. The problem, of course, is that the rising of a monarchy did not change this scenario or situation. Um, the problem continues throughout the monarchy. So this is a long-standing problem And it's not limited to a particular context. It's not limited to a certain group of people. We see the problem problem repeating over and over in all sorts of different contexts. Now, one of the things this reminds me of is, is today. And the way in which people can be very outspoken against abusive men when they're aligned with maybe an opposition political party or a religious group they're not a fan of or whatever, whether it's the Christian who says, ah, yes, look at the way Muslim men treat women, whether it's the um, progressive political person who says, look at the way conservative politicals treat women or vice versa. We find all sorts of ways to point out how abusive men are indicative of the problems with the system uh, when it's a system that we're not in. But often we can be very quiet when it turns out that people on our side are like that too. Uh, I was thinking about this in terms of in in North America. Hello, my American listeners. Uh, I know there are some of you out there. Um, And, you know, there's a a, a pretty big, um, you know, waiting against... uh, So Fox News is this conservative news channel in North America, right? Pretty infamous for being um, quite partisan in the way that it uh, tells the story of the news from this very conservative political uh, viewpoint, and in particular, has become a real Trump-supporting system, uh, propaganda system in the last couple of years. It's, I think it's probably fair to say. And so, from anyone who's not really conservative, Fox is is a, a pretty good example of a terrible news channel, and I'm very sympathetic to that point of view. And and Roger Ailes, who was the uh, the head of Fox, it uh, was ultimately discovered, had, you know, needed to be ousted from the company because of his abuse of women within that system. And people at the other networks, people on the more progressive side of things, said, "See, that's this is more evidence that conservatives are terrible." Uh, and maybe it was. I don't know. I'm not going to get into the complexities of that. But there was this um, very um, self-justifying approach, which not not that not to name what he did as a problem, because it clearly was abusive behaviour for which he should have been stood down long before and I'm sad that it hadn't come to light for so long and that he got compensated so well out of all of that. Anyway, uh, the problem was within the attitude to say, classic, there he is, indicative of the problems of that system, we don't have that same problem and yet now the heads and important figures within some of the other networks have been shown to engage in the same kind of behaviour. So when we make the assumption that the problem is only with those people over there, then in fact we've reduced the actual problem of (laughs) uh, the male violence and abuse towards women and we've turned that into a pawn for our political preference and to me that's a problem. Um, So all of that to say, this is not just a problem for those people over there, This um, this is a problem for men everywhere. And of course, then, for women. The second thing, then, that we observe is, yes, this has been going on for a long time and it's been going on in all sorts of different contexts. The second thing is that the art of minimising male violence against women has also been going on for a long time. And although the scriptures include these shocking stories, which I would argue in some ways is a good thing because it should force us to reevaluate these heroic characters and ask some more critical questions of them, the way the stories are told can often leave the woman as vilified, as sexualized, as objectified, as silent or anonymous. And these continue to be problems. And then our treatment of those stories to minimise and justify, and justify and explain away the violence in those stories is exactly the same kind of behaviour we see now when people, men in particular, seek to explain away, justify and minimise violence against women. All right. Thirdly... And maybe this is a more helpful observation, because at this point I'm probably just stating the obvious to some degree, although I, sometimes it appears to be less obvious than I think it should be. Thirdly, our task if we're to engage in this biblical text to access some wisdom, spirituality, insight in some ways forward is to step back and look at the trajectory of the story over time. And what we actually see is that the story that plays out across the breadth of the Bible's narrative is slowly undoing elements of itself slowly subverting itself. It starts to give us the tools, equipment, if you like, the technology, the spirituality, the insight, nudge, the clue to actually help us turn around and say, hey, that's not right. This element of the story needs to be undone and here's another path forward. So in the Christian tradition in particular, we go to the Jesus story as a way of shaping our framework for thinking about this evolving trajectory and we see that Jesus, if we look at the story of Jesus, includes marginalized and shamed women into his inner circle. And this is revolutionary for its time. And maybe, I don't know if it's because of this, but maybe it is, that Jesus is conceived in an apparent scandalous situation to an unwed teenage mother. Right? He would have grown up with a mother who was uh, laughed about, who I'm sure he was teased about. Um, you know, the church kind of accepts the story of the virgin birth as like kind of oh yeah 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 the virgin birth. But how would you react uh, if that's what somebody claimed? Oh yes, uh, oh, this just child I had. No, I didn't. Honestly, I didn't. Um, I didn't have sex before I was married. It was it was God. God did it. Well, that's the way the story goes, and you can imagine how that went down with everybody around them. Anyway, I don't know if that's the what shapes Jesus' attitude towards women, as well as obviously the Christian claim that he embodies the very nature of what God is like. Um, but what we see in the course of Jesus' life is this inclusion of marginalized and shamed women into his inner circle. He shows compassion and empathy to women that he encounters who are being abused and shunned and vilified by others. And as the story goes, as he dies, it's the women who primarily are the ones who stay by his side. Most of the men have run away in fear, and it's the women who remain. And as the Gospels tell the story, it's the women who are the first to see him alive again in this kind of resurrection motif that takes place in the New Testament. It's women who first see him alive again, and it's woman who first share this good news. And I think there's a strong message at work here that seeks to undermine the heavily patriarchal nature of the society in which this story is told. Then we have this character Paul in the New Testament who writes a bunch of the New Testament letters. And, look, at times Paul can sound like he's pretty regressive toward women and perhaps compared to the 21st century and the things we know and understand now, maybe he kind of is. But for again, for his time, he's actually pretty revolutionary. Um... So instead of asking exactly where he's up to now in terms of comparing him to our attitudes today, we could ask the question, what's the trajectory here? What's the path? What, what direction is this thing heading? Is it flowing? Because he was actually quite radical and revolutionary for his time. Uh, at one point, Paul stands against three of the major defining boundaries of human status that were used to justify oppression and marginalization in the first century, so he says that uh, in Christ, his, which is his way of talking about what it was to live in the, in the way kind of following this Jesus character, in Christ there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all are one. Uh, and so what Paul does here is he actually upends the naturally assumed categories that are used in the first century to oppress and subjugate and divide people of different ethnicity, of different class, slave and free, and of gender, the male dominance over woman, and he wants to obliterate that kind of division. Uh, So if we follow the trajectory and see where that's pointing, what we actually see over time, and this does play out in the history of the early church, is that this kind of idea slowly begins to unpick and undermine the patriarchal nature of the society in which this story is embedded. And for me, what all of this suggests is that the full and total liberation and empowerment of woman is integral to the story of what the divine is up to both in the ancient biblical text and therefore even more so here and now. Even if we return to the very first story of the Bible, the creation mythology of Genesis, it is both Adam and Eve who are the image of God. This is this is revolutionary stuff for the ancient world. Okay, so here's a few thoughts to leave us with, a few takeaways to consider as we go ahead. Firstly when we pay attention to these stories in the Bible then we are confronted with our tendency particularly among men to minimise, to justify, to explain away or to shift the blame but this much is clear male violence and abuse of women is an issue that must be named confronted and resisted at every possible moment. If you are a person of Christian faith then it's part of what it means to follow Jesus. If you're not a person of Christian faith, then please know that any attempt by Christians to commit, justify or minimise male violence on women is a bastardisation of what it means to be a Christian. Secondly, as men, it has to be owned as our problem, not just the problem of some people somewhere else at some time else. And lastly, I want to say this, I want to say that any theology that suggests that men are superior to women, that only men can be spiritual leaders, priests, pastors, or ministers, that men are the head of the home, and that women should always submit to the authority of men, any of this theology helps to foster a climate in which abuse of women is more easily propagated and justified. And I'm not saying that if you hold to a more inclusive theology or more progressive or whatever, that you won't have any of these problems. Right now we can see that a problem for both conservatives and progressives. Fundamentalists, liberals, whatever categories you want to draw, it's a problem to us all. But we must seek, in my mind, to undo any kind of theological framework that's going to exacerbate in any kind of way this problem. And although I don't have time to go through it all in this episode, I'm completely convinced that the biblical text uh, cannot, should not be used to support a theology that places men in a superior position over women. Okay, so I got a little bit—I uh, got a little bit fired up in that. I apologise if that uh, comes across. No, I don't apologise. What am I saying? Uh, <laughs> look, I am generally the kind of guy who likes to, you know, play a pretty even hand, and who wants to be able to say, "Hey, guys, let's look at all this from different perspectives and build some bridges." Um. But on this kind of issue, that's not what's needed uh, and that's not what I want to do. Uh, And so uh, if that sounds kind of heavy and a bit preachy, well, sometimes that's what's needed maybe, you know. Uh, All of that to say, that's some pretty weighty stuff and I'm aware I've just covered a huge amount of ground in a short space of time and have probably inadequately uh, delved into some of this stuff. Um, But I hope that it gets you thinking. I hope that it prompts you and provokes you and makes you reassess or explore some of what's going on in the biblical text and what the story of the Christian faith is supposed to do for us. And um, in the next episode (laughs) will be our third part of this uh, series on violence in the Bible. And we're going to be looking at divine violence, the violence that is attributed to God in the biblical text And what on earth do we do with all of that? So that is next time on In The Shift. I'll see you then.